Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, this is Kevin Harlan of CBS TNT and Westwood One. You're listening to The Jake Brown Show. Welcome to The Jake Brown Show. We're back here on The Jake Brown Show. Play it out at iTunes, Spotify is where you find us. Subscribe, rate, review. Jake Brown Radio, Jake Brown Show. All over social media. And the man on the line right now, I, I just was talking to him and telling him that my dad, every time... Uh, he brings. I bring up his name in some capacity. He says, "Oh, you know that Iron Eagle guy? He, that's you, Jake. Soon, once he started at 2020, and now look, he's doing national games. Uh, he is the Nets play-by-play announcer. Yes, he's NFL and CBS play-by-play. He does college hoops as well. He does it all. It's Iron Eagle right now on the Jake Brown Show. Pleasure to talk to you, Iron. Jake, you make me want to imitate your dad, and I don't even know him. <laughs> Well, if you're going to have Iron Eagle on, you got to ask him about the 2020s. He used to do that, like 1991, 92. <laughs> well, the funny thing is when, when my dad puts it on speaker, I know he's going to listen to this, so he'll probably, yeah, he won't get mad, but he, whenever he puts it on speaker, people think sometimes he's a woman, so they, they think he's Miss Brown because his voice gets a little more high-pitched. So he goes, hey, I, I'm, I'm Mr. Brown, not Miss Brown. Uh, so just imagine a, a six-foot, a little chubby guy from Queens, and uh, that's Bob Brown right there. Talker. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. That's a nice conversation starter. Yeah, there you go. And hey, me and you, by the way, February 9th, you were born. I'm February 5th, so that makes us not, is it Aquarii? Aquariuses? Uh, uh, I think either is acceptable, Jake. Aquarii. There we go. Um, 1969, of course. Uh, but first off, you called Steelers Ravens this week. Before we get into your career and everything, let's talk some football here. Steelers Ravens, what a game. Back and forth, the final minutes, touchdown for touchdown for touchdown. Uh, the Steelers pull it out. I mean, another thrilling Ravens-Steelers classic, huh? Yeah, and it really lived up to the billing. A lot of times, the buildup and the hype leading into a game like that, it doesn't always deliver. But you knew what was on the line, the rich history between these two teams, and this has been a fierce rivalry for a long time. And not just because they're in the same division, but because they've been quality teams. Uh, These are franchises that have accomplished a great deal. So to have one game mean so much in Week 16, to have it on Christmas, and for the game to come down to the wire back and forth, Baltimore did everything in its power offensively to win that game, and ultimately their defense let them down. Up three, just over a minute to play, Roethlisberger gets them down the field. Pittsburgh, you know, at the very least, they're going to kick a field goal, force overtime, but they're looking for the win at home and looking for the division. And they get the ball into the hands of their playmaker, Antonio Brown. And it's a risky play. It's a gamble at the goal line. With no timeouts Mm -hmm. remaining, uh, he gets knocked down low and maintains his balance, extends the football to break the plane. And with nine seconds left, if he doesn't, it's a fire drill to yeah. get a field goal off. I think they would have, even without no timeouts, because the offensive linemen were lingering in that area. But it's a gamble, and it's a gamble that pays off. Brown is a tremendous talent. Uh, he's a difference maker, and the Steelers win the division. Baltimore, 
walks away disappointed in what was an up-and-down season, but ultimately I, I do believe Pittsburgh is the better team. Yeah, and after coming into the week, we say, hey, look at all these AFC spots right now. Things are going to shift around. Now all six AFC spots locked in for the playoffs. Some positioning can change. You also called Jets-Patriots uh, the day before. Two games in one weekend, which I, I assume is rare for you considering it was – a Saturday and a Sunday. It was a busy Christmas weekend for you. It was. Yeah, I did that last year as well. I had an NFL Network game on a Saturday last year in Philadelphia and then drove back to Jersey and, and called a Jet game the next day on CBS. I'm used to juggling assignments. It's a matter of compartmentalizing and just making sure that you've got everything in order and that you can separate it in your brain. So for Jets and Patriots, it's a completely different approach on television. It's a bit more storytelling. It's a bit more anecdotal. Obviously, from a play-by-play man's perspective, you're pulling back. You're doing less. You're saying less. You're setting up your analyst. You're letting the pictures tell the story. Radio 180, uh, where you are the eyes and ears. You are painting the word picture. It's a blank canvas. And while storylines and background information is important, the main thrust of your job is score, time remaining, situation, and can you be the conduit for the listener? People driving home from their family gatherings on Christmas, I'm sure there were a bunch of people in their cars, and that's the way I view it. Uh, it, it was really a fun atmosphere on, on Sunday. On Saturday, a festive atmosphere for the New England fans because it was celebration mode, and it was early. You knew that the Jets were not in the same league as the Patriots. And New York is dealing with a lot of adversity and a lot of question marks about the future right now. Yeah, and they, what do you think of the decision here to go out and start Fitzpatrick over Hackenberg in Week 17? Yeah, I work with Dan Fouts, who is a Hall of Fame quarterback. I went to the Pro Bowl on a perennial basis, a six-time Pro Bowler, was such a prolific passer. And I asked him during the broadcast, what would you do? How would you handle this Christian Hackenberg situation? And he said, I'd play him. You cannot simulate real game action in the NFL. And Dan said, "I." this is him talking, I didn't learn anything watching from the sideline. Hmm. Watching the game, some people will tell you, well, it's important you see a different perspective. Dan uh, didn't buy into it. He felt that even back in... In his rookie season, when the Chargers were terrible, Johnny Unitas was the starting quarterback in his final year in the NFL, Dan's rookie year coming out of Oregon. And Unitas gets injured. They eventually put Fouts in there. And he didn't improve the team. They scored some more points, and maybe there were some signs for the future. But he took his lumps. And his point is... You have a reservoir of success that you're able to pull experiences out of as an NFL quarterback, and you have a reservoir of adversity and failure that you need to experience as well. So I understand his point. I would agree with his point. Uh, The problem is we're not at practice. We don't know how much they've put on Christian Hackenberg's plate. Uh, We don't know how much they've done in trying to change him and alter him as a passer. The knock on Hackenberg at Penn State was he was inaccurate, has a legitimate NFL arm, but could not get it to his receivers cleanly on a consistent basis. Uh, Have they attempted to change his throwing motion? Have they changed his footwork? Uh, These are all legitimate questions. We're not going to get the answer because odds are 
We're not going to see him. They don't believe he's ready. They want to give him a true redshirt year, and that's the approach, I assume, not just of the coaching staff, but of management and ownership as well. And it's one of the reasons probably Todd Bowles will be likely getting a pink slip after the season. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure on that one. Uh, I do think that when you get embarrassed down the stretch of the season within your division, the way they have against Miami, against New England, now this Buffalo game, no Rex Ryan, that would have been an additional embarrassment if Rex Ryan came back in to MetLife and got a win with the Bills in a lame duck situation because everybody knew Rex was going to get let go. Uh, Tyrod Taylor is not starting, so E.J. Manuel is back in. Uh, Now... Does that change the circumstances, or has ownership seen enough with Todd Bowles? My gut feeling from when this season went awry was that Bowles would survive it, uh, that they would give him three years, him and McCagnan, to try to, to make this thing come together. The problems that have occurred with the infighting and the back and forth between Brandon Marshall and Sheldon Richardson, it shows that the team is fracturing. It shows that uh, there is not harmony and that they're going to have to really look to revamp this roster. So with that in mind, if you're changing everything, there might be uh, a feeling from the owner, Woody Johnson, that he needs to change the coach as well. I would like to think that it doesn't come down to this Jets-Buffalo game to determine the fate of Todd Bowles, but if they were to get embarrassed by the Buffalo Bills, that's not going to help Todd Bowles in his quest to come back for a third year. Speaking of sexy Rexy, um, were you surprised? I was surprised at the timing of the firing, how they do it with a week left, with the Jets coming up on the schedule. I heard one reporter say maybe Rex asked for it because his son is playing Saturday for Clemson in the <laughs> playoff. Uh, were you surprised? I'm not shocked. Nothing really surprises me anymore in the NFL. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the decision had been made a few weeks ago, and they were just trying to figure out the right time to do it. There might have been a meeting with Terry Pagula, the owner, and Rex Ryan, and in that meeting when Pagula said that, hey, this is what we're going to do at the end of the season, there's a chance that Rex said, well, uh, let's just do it now. Uh, That wouldn't surprise me. That part of it wouldn't shock me at all. Uh, Rex is a very proud guy. And I could see him uh, saying to the owner, hey, look, you don't want me here, then I don't want to be here, as opposed to going through the motions and trying to play the role of head coach for a week when everybody knows that he was going to be gone. Uh, How this was all handled, hey, look, owners have the right to do as they please. We can question whether or not it's fair, unfair, Ultimately, Rex provided a lot of buzz around the team, and I think he was brought on as the head coach because he could make the Bills relevant. But from a football standpoint, it didn't seem as if they were happy with Rex from the very start. It was a whole lot of talk, and they couldn't really back it up. Defense was better this year than they were last year, but they were terrible last year. And... Jake, you know this. If you don't have the quarterback that you believe in, then odds are uh, you're not on the right track in this league. And with Tyrod Taylor, they rolled the dice. They paid him some money. It's not guaranteed. Uh, They can move on from him, and it looks like they will. But 
ultimately that didn't work out. That's not Rex's side of the ball. That wasn't Rex's call. That was Doug Whaley's call. And obviously the general manager right now has a better relationship with ownership than the head coach did. Are, are you on board with the philosophy of Rex Ryan will not be an NFL head coach again? I don't think he will. Uh, I think Rex is very charming, very likable. My sense is uh, he's going to give this broadcast thing a go and uh, see if he can turn it into something. Uh, he's got a great personality. He always stands out. Uh, he knows how to have fun. And it should translate. Now, what he wants to do, does he want to be a studio guy? Does he want to be a game analyst? Or is there still a burning desire? The competitive juices are flowing, and he wants to run somebody's defense and try to build his name back up. I'm not sure which direction he'll go on that. Uh, he's, he's a tough guy to figure out in, in many ways. So uh, with Rex, he's going to have some options, and I'm sure there's a team out there that would be willing to bring him in as a coordinator. The question is whether or not his ego would allow it at this stage of the game. He's been a head coach for a long time now. He's made a lot of money. So financially, this is no longer an issue for him. He's got enough money to last his family for a lifetime. Uh, the question now just becomes, what does he want to do? And how does he want to fill up his year? Does he want to remain in football as a coach and the demanding hours and the expectations and the pressure? Or does he want to try the television world, which is a completely different job and vocation, uh, but one that also can be fun and challenging and uh, can get his creative juices flowing. It'll be interesting to see which which direction he goes in here, but he will have options, Jake. Yeah, I, I, I think he's going to should choose the TV route if he's smart. I think there's going to be a ton of networks coming after him. Probably right now they're on the phone with him this second uh, as we speak because we know how entertaining the guy is. I think he's built for a TV personality. Mm -hmm. he, it could be his sitcom with him and his brother. I mean, <laughs> just imagine them traveling around, uh, Rex and Rob uh, riding a, a unicycle together, stuff like that. And just There's so many different videos and different segments that could be created out of it. Uh, TV has Rex's face written all over it. Yeah, and, and it's not contrived. It's real. This is not a persona that he has put on. It's him. It's him and Rob. They are entertaining people uh, you're right there probably could be a reality show with those two guys uh, if somebody wanted to do it uh, he's going to have some options and uh, yeah he seems to be tailor-made for the television role but hey look he's the, the son of a coach a great coach mm -hmm. uh, the late buddy ryan uh, sometimes that's just in your blood and while you and i can take a step back and say hey for your life this might be the best way to go uh, you stay in the spotlight, but you don't have the angst of the coaches that deal with that on a daily basis. But sometimes you can't shake it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's in him. But he still has money coming his way. So uh, financially, uh, he may be better off taking a couple of years off, collecting his paycheck, and uh, seeing if he enjoys TV and if it's something that's worthwhile. I think John Gruden went into television thinking it was a lark that he would do it for a couple years, and that he would go back. I think Bill Cower did the same thing. There are very successful coaches that step away, and then two years, three years into that say, wow, I didn't realize that I actually enjoyed 
other aspects of life, mm. that I didn't have to be completely consumed by the 53-man roster and the day-to-day uh, challenges of being a head coach. And Gruden and Cowher are two examples, Super Bowl champions, that have stepped away and I think truly enjoy the fact that they've found some balance in their life. Yeah, and uh, you made a good point with the Buddy Ryan. It's in your blood. Um, I had a situation recently where someone asked me if I wanted to pursue becoming an agent, an NBA agent, and I said I, I really don't want to leave broadcasting this early and go to that. So it's not that similar, but it's when you're in love with something, you don't want to leave it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could see the situation. He's in Iron Eagle joining us here on the Jake Brown Show, played out at iTunes, Spotify. Uh, sticking with the AFC here. Man, Derek Carr, just a tough, tough break, uh, no pun intended. Then Marcus Mariota gets hurt. They get eliminated. Do you look at the Raiders as still a team that can maybe beat the Patriots in the playoffs with Matt McGloin or no chance? Yeah, it's, that's a tall order. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, let's see how Matt McGloin handles himself in Week 17. I think that would go a long way in creating some confidence among the rank and file. Uh, those guys fed off of Derek Carr. He was the absolute clear-cut leader of that football team in just his third year in the NFL. Uh, Dan and I did a couple of his games his rookie year, and we were really impressed, in fact, blown away by how he handled himself in the production meetings, uh, his guile on the field. There's a certain savvy aspect to him, even though he's a young guy really confident and emotes that, and I think it did rub off on his teammates. When Jack Del Rio got there, he empowered him. Mm -hmm. He gave Carr even more confidence than he had, and he was already a very confident guy. So to lose him, it's not just losing your quarterback, it's losing the vocal leader of your team. That's asking a lot for Matt McLoin to step in. Now, there's no possible way he can replace the emotional part of what Derek Carr brought to that team. Can he be sufficient? Can he be competent in the role? Because they've got a lot of pieces. Their offensive line is right there with Dallas mm-hmm. as the best in the NFL. I'd say Pittsburgh is also in that conversation. They have playmakers at the wide receiver spot. Uh, their running game has been effective enough. Their defense maligned early, and rightfully so. The numbers were terrible. But defensively, they've been opportunistic. So you're asking Matt McGloin to come in and just steer the ship. You're not asking him to do what Derek Carr has done for this team. Is that enough to go on an extended run? Uh, That remains to be seen. That was a huge blow to that team. So is is the inevitable here, uh, Patriots, Steelers, AFC Championship in your mind? I would say Kansas City is is the one team you have to keep an eye on. Uh, Based on the fact that they were there last year and went to New England, they were competitive against the Patriots. It was a 27-20 game. Kansas City had chances. You might recall the clock management down the stretch was a bit of an issue, and it's something that's haunted Andy Reid throughout his head coaching career. And I think the Chiefs are better this year than they were last year, uh, namely because of one player, and that's Tyreek Hill. He's given them this explosive dynamic that they just didn't have a year ago. A running game has been solid. The difference between Pittsburgh and Kansas City, Pittsburgh more explosive on offense. Uh, You can't even compare. Uh, They can hurt you in so many ways offensively. But Kansas City is much more competitive on defense and can get to the quarterback. 
I don't know if Pittsburgh ultimately could put enough pressure on Tom Brady and the Patriots to get a win in Foxborough. Kansas City could have one of those days defensively, and what they have in the secondary is special. And you look at the way they've won games this season, Jake. It's one of those years that you look back on. If they ever did go to the Super Bowl and win it, there would be points that you could look back on during the season and say, yeah, that was a clear sign that this was their year. They had so many improbable wins. The one in Carolina, it's a game that I did along with Dan Fouts. The one against Atlanta sticks out as well on a two-point conversion that goes the other way. Eric Berry was the hero. They've had a bunch of those, and that's not by coincidence. That means that this team defensively makes things happen. And that's the only thing I would be concerned with uh, from New England's standpoint. New England's leading the NFL in defensive scoring, uh, and by a lot. Uh, they're going to win that category basically no matter what happens, uh, barring uh, a complete meltdown against Miami in Week 17. Uh, that shows you that uh, for you to go out and beat New England you're going to have to go against their strength, and their strength is keeping you out of the end zone. Kansas City's not going to go out and outscore them, but they could get into a defensive battle with them and make it interesting. So the Chiefs would be the one wild card that I would look at in the AFC and say, hey, this team's very capable, and they've got pieces that they believe can, can actually go out and win a championship. Yeah, the Chiefs are like the San Antonio Spurs this year. They're not sexy at all, but they find ways to win games, and they have the, yep. the veteran coach, uh, Andy Reid, like Popovich. Shifting to the NFC here, uh, what stands out to you? Is it the Cowboys, Conference Losers? The Seahawks are just so weird. Yeah. Uh, they You just can't tell what you're going to get from them on a week-to-week basis. Uh, what are you looking at going into the NFC playoffs? Well, I, I would put Green Bay in the same category mm-hmm. as Kansas City in that they're very dangerous. Uh, that's not a team that I would want to play if uh, I was picking my matchups in the NFC. Seattle, yeah, they're, uh, they're tough to figure out. Uh, I know that Pete Carroll has said a couple of times that, hey, that's not us. Like, things happen at the end of the game, and they walk away with a loss, and Pete's first thing is, hey, that's not, that's not who we are. The problem is it's happened too much now for us to just quickly poo-poo that and say, oh, yeah, it's not who they are. It might be who they are. And come playoff time, where it's a one-and-done format, uh, if that's even close to resembling who they are, they'll be out quickly. The Giants are interesting because of Eli Manning and because of his experience and the fact that that defense has played lights out. That was probably the most unexpected thing from their team. You figured offensively with Ben McAdoo sliding over from offensive coordinator to head coach that they would be very good, that they would be competitive. They've probably been less than expected offensively, but so much more than expected defensively. They did spend a lot of money on defense, and it's really paid off. Give Steve Spagnuolo a lot of credit for coordinating that group. And uh, that defense is for real. Uh, They're going to be a tough out as well. Atlanta... I mean, we're kind of going off the old Atlanta as opposed to the new Atlanta, and I don't really know which team we're going to get. Matt Ryan's had an MVP-like season. I wouldn't be shocked if he actually wins the MVP award. They've got a fantastic running game. Uh, the questions will come on the defensive side of the ball and in a pressure situation. Can they get it done? They have not been able to get it done in the past, but should we hold their past failures against them for this year's version. 
Uh, it's Dan Quinn. It's a new coaching staff. It's a new approach. So Atlanta is one of those teams that uh, I'm also curious about. And uh, we spent this whole time without mentioning the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, they are riding a wave right now. Uh, this is Jerry Jones' fantasy come true. They are exciting. They are a likable team. They play it the right way. Their quarterback doesn't make mistakes. They have an electrifying running back. They have a top-notch offensive line. Uh, the questions are still there defensively and also experience-wise. Once you get into that moment, you just don't know how guys are going to handle it. And rookies are still rookies. Uh, I know they've played a lot of football, and they've played it really well to the point where they've both been mentioned as MVP candidates. But the playoffs are a little different, and I want to see those guys under the bright lights and, and see how they handle the pressure of having that X on their back. Ian Eagle joining us here, and the Giants are going to be interesting, especially considering JPP looks like he might make his return in the second round if the Giants do get there, which makes that defense uh, even better. A uh, couple more minutes left here. The Yes Network Nets broadcaster as well had a great call of Randy Foy's game-winning three last night. For you and the Nets, it's so important in my mind. I like to watch Nets games to hear you because the team obviously stinks, how hard is it for you to kind of stay motivated through a team when you know entering the season uh, they're not going to be that good? Well, there's two things from a broadcast standpoint that I've always looked at as part of the job description. I've been doing Nets games for 23 years. So the way I view it, even though it's a New York-centric audience, uh, the fact that NBA League Pass is becoming such a big deal and all of these games are available all over the world. I don't take for granted that anybody knows my work. I go into games assuming there are going to be people watching that have never heard of me, that don't know my resume, that aren't going to care what I've done, what I've called, how many years I've been doing it. So they're basing their opinion solely on what they hear in that moment. And that's the constant reminder for me of do a good job all the time, no matter how good the team is, how bad the team is, how good the game is, how bad the game is. Uh, to me, it was my dream to one day call NBA and NFL games. I'm not going to go into a game and just uh, assume that I can put it on automatic pilot. So that's very motivating when you think of it in those terms. And I'm not telling you this as lip service of, hey, I, I care about my job. Uh, that's to me understood that that should be a basic premise for anybody that's doing the job but to go beyond it and think beyond the obvious for me is a reminder of hey call the game call it well uh, if somebody on the other team larry nance jr had a huge dunk recently against the nets maybe dunk of the year in yeah, the nba that was incredible yeah yeah it was uh, he was levitating uh, his dad was a fantastic yep. finisher in the NBA, he's equally as good, if not better, because he's got uh, this leaping ability. So in that moment, it's the Lakers at the Nets. I'm the Nets broadcaster, but it's a great NBA play. So this is the second part of, of what I was mentioning after you had the question, and that is call the action in front of you. No matter who it is, if it's the Lakers or the Spurs or the Grizzlies or the Kings, if it's a fantastic play, 
I still look at it as my duty as a play-by-play man to convey the emotion of the moment, whether it's for the Nets or against the Nets. That's part of what you sign up for. If it's a great play, you better have a great call to back it up. And that's been my philosophy from day one. I remember early in my career calling Nets games, I used to receive some letters here and there from fans that questioned me why I had such a big call and put so much into it when Sean Kemp had a dunk or Gary Payton set up Kemp when the Supersonics had it rolling. And I would write the people back and and explain, hey, my job is as an NBA broadcaster, to call the game and not just call the good plays for the Nets and blow off the good plays for the other team. And usually then the person would write back, oh, I appreciate your answer, I respect that. They just wanted to know why, and I have the same answer today. Nothing's changed. So uh, a roundabout way to answer your question, uh, no matter what's going on with the Nets, uh, my mindset is still, hey, I'm calling an NBA game, and there is a really good chance that something may happen in that game that I'm calling that I have not seen before. And I've seen a lot of NBA games. So you better be on your toes, and you be better be ready to deliver in the moment. At 23 years old, I mean, it's just ridiculous when you think about it. You were on the fan hosting Bagels and Baseball. <laughs> um, what, what was that show? was a show on Sunday mornings with me and former Yankee pitcher Tommy John huh. that Mark Chernoff coordinated. He wanted a baseball show uh, very similar to what now Mike Francesa does on Sundays, the football, football show yeah. during the NFL season. And Tommy could talk your ear off. I've talked to him many times. <laughs> yeah, Tommy, Tommy's <laughs> a wonderful guy. And Tommy would drive in from God knows where and would show up for this Sunday morning show after getting like a two-hour nap at the Vince Lombardi service area. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. Great uh, he, would, yeah. he, he would crack me up, but he was a wealth of knowledge. We actually had a lot of fun doing it. I had done another show called Friday Night Hoops on FAN, which was very successful, Bernard King and I. I think Mark turn off sense that I had a way with analysts. And this is before I was doing play-by-play. So I give Mark a lot of credit that he recognized early that I could get former players to talk on a human level and communicate, not with the red light going on and all of a sudden uh, everything would shift in our conversation. But when the red light would go on, it would be a continuation of what we were doing off the air in the newsroom prior to the show. So that... uh, that was a show that lasted a few years, I think, before I got the net job and then continued a couple of years, in fact, uh, after I got the net job. And then more play-by-play assignments started to come my way, and, and I began to branch off more into that part of the business. How the heck did you start that early is what amazes me. Like, how, how are you the Nets play-by-play guy at 25, my age right now? Like, how did that come about? That was a pretty random story in that I saw a Phil Mushnick column in the New York Post, uh, just a regular little note in his column, mm-hmm. as he is one to do when he does one of the, the, uh, the columns that are long form with seven or eight or nine nuggets in it. And it said that Howard David, the longtime voice of the Nets, was not going to be coming back to do radio the following year. Mm-hmm. And I had had a dream, and this is going to sound freaky, but I had had a dream two weeks earlier that I was 
at the broadcast table at the Meadowlands. I had covered some Nets games as a stringer for WFAN. So I'd been to the Meadowlands for both the Nets and the Devils. I would do that sometimes at nights or on weekends. And I had this weird dream that I was calling a net game, and my father was at the arena, and it was very odd. I remember waking up for it and, and telling my wife about it, and it was two weeks before I saw that little note in Phil Mustick's column. So I, I cold-called the Nets, and I got the director of broadcasting on the phone at the time, Amy Shear. I explained who I was. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard you on FAN. I explained that I was interested in the job. She told me that there was very little time left that they had actually started the search a month earlier uh, and it was just going public that Howard was not going to be back said look I don't think it's going to help but if you want you could come drop off a tape at our offices and I promise you I'll I'll have my boss listen to it so that's what I did I jumped in my car I had a tape from college from Syracuse of a Syracuse Seton Hall game at the Meadowlands. So I thought maybe uh, something was in the stars there. That was the best play-by-play stretch that I felt I had on tape. I drove it over to the Nets office in East Rutherford. I knew nothing about the state of New Jersey. I was from Queens, from Forest Hills, Hmm. and I didn't understand the jug handle. I, I had no understanding of the traffic rules in New Jersey. And I drove it right to the office. Amy was nice enough to meet me in the lobby. I handed her the tape, and that was it. I walked out of there. She called me the next day. She said, hey, I played for my boss, and we liked it. She said, here's the thing. We want to hear something a little more recent. This is from four years ago. She said, do you have anything more recent? I said, "Um, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I didn't. I, I had nothing else. That was all I had. She said, all right, well, can you get it to me? I said, uh, I may need a day on that one. She got, okay, yeah, I can give you a day. So I called a buddy of mine that worked at NBA Entertainment. I asked him, hey, if I come into your studios, could you set me up in front of a TV calling a game and then have somebody put ambient noise, some crowd noise behind it? And he said, yeah, yeah, I think we could do that. If he says no, it's over. Yeah. It ends right there. But because he said yes, I got in my car. I drove back to Jersey again, knowing very little about the state. This time I went to Secaucus, and I called a net Nick playoff game from 1994 by myself in a little mini studio slash cubicle, and they put some crowd noise to it. I drove it back over to the Nets. They listened to the tape. They brought me in for an interview. I met with the president of the team, John Spolstra, the father of Miami head coach Eric Spolstra. And the one thing that I would say separated me, and it was, it was a bold move, it was borderline cocky, but I could feel that we were hitting it off in the interview. And I said to him, uh, Mr. Spolstra, I said, look, I don't know which direction this is going to go in with your decision, but I know this. I know I'm going to be successful in this business. I know I'm going to do well at play-by-play. If you give me this job, if you give me this opportunity for the rest of my career, 
you'll be the one that gave me my break doing play-by-play. You'll be the one that recognized that. And he looked at me with a, a quizzical look, and then he smiled. And I remember walking out of the interview and, and calling my wife, and she said, what do you think? And I said, I, I think I got this job. I really do. I believe that I got this job. It all happened within about nine days from the moment I saw the Phil Mushnick note to the moment that I got the job. It was about a nine-day period, and it was a, obviously a game-changer for me. It changed my whole career, and, and it set me on a completely different path. That is a remarkable story. Have you told that story before? Uh, yeah, I, I've told it here and there. Uh, but That's a great story. Yeah, it's, it's one of those very personal things that you look back on. And trust me, I've got like six more like that with other jobs that I got that were based on circumstance and timing hmm. and connecting with people on a human level. Jake, you're 25 years old. Uh, you're, you're doing great stuff now. You're in a world where social media is king, and I understand that, and texting is the way that we communicate, and instant messaging. I still believe that the best way to truly promote yourself and get yourself out there is in person, one-on-one, and connecting with people on a human level. I still believe that to be true, and... I look back on that as an integral part of getting some opportunities and also having people believe in me because uh, after having a conversation or an interview or a sit-down that they could walk away from that saying, you know what, I trust that guy. I think he's going to do good work. Yeah, that, that's it's, it's all about the face-to-face and your impression in person. It obviously worked out for you. Um, last one here, Ian. Before we let you go, what did Craig Sager mean to you, and do you have any stories um, of Sager? Harlan told us last week that he once smuggled a an iguana from Puerto Rico <laughs> to the U.S. on a plane. Yeah, Craig, uh, Craig and Kevin, I know we're very close. They they worked together for so many years. I think Craig was very much ahead of his time in, in many ways. When Craig broke in as a sideline reporter. The role was still fairly new, and I think the general impression at the time was, well, these are maybe a waste of time. Are we really getting a whole lot out of it? Are the coaches being honest? Are the players showing any true part of their personality? And because of Craig's demeanor and the way that he radiated this positive energy, I think he broke down so many of those walls that usually pop up between media member and athlete or coach or GM or owner or commissioner. Craig probably camouflaged what he really was, which was a very curious journalist. He asked excellent questions, but he did it in a way that did not seem like he was imposing or that he was challenging, yet he would get the answers that you were looking for. The trademark became the close, and maybe he needed that to break through and show his personality and get noticed. But ultimately, I think the fact that uh, he's remembered the way that he is is based on his spirit 
and based on his likability. You know, I got to work with him a few times at Turner when I would step in and do some games uh, if Marv Albert had a day off here and there and was with his com- in his company with uh, the NCAA tournament when Turner came on board. Uh, so I've been at dinners that, that Craig was at and parties and uh, been in production meetings with him. Yeah, Craig was a one-of-a-kind guy. It truly was. And uh, there's a reason why he resonated so much within NBA circles. Uh, he was real. Uh, that, that was not contrived. It was not artificial. And ultimately on television and on radio, for that matter, uh, I think that's what people connect with most. They still want a human quality. They don't want a robot. They don't want a machine. They want someone that's relatable and someone that uh, they feel... Uh, a kinship with, and, and Craig had the ability to do that. That is the voice of Ian Eagle, NFL and CBS play-by-play man, Nets play-by-play man on Yes. Ian, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Appreciate you taking the time, and I'm glad now my dad doesn't have to mention that he did 2020. He did. He was at the fan because now we heard the exact story uh, from the coffee and baseball, bagels and baseball days and beyond. Ian, appreciate you coming on, man. All right, uh, Bob, still, still push it, man. Don't, don't back off. I like it. I like getting a little promotion in the Brown household. Appreciate it, Ian. Talk soon. Thanks. All right, Jake. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.